0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's my pleasure to be joined by Monica D. Fitzgerald, author of Puritans Behaving Badly, Gender, Punishment, and Religion in Early America, just published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Monica is a professor in the Justice, Community, and Leadership Program at St. Mary's College of California. Monica, congratulations on the book, and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited about the book. I'm really excited to be here with you today, so thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, the pleasure is all mine. Before we get into the book, Puritans Behaving Badly, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am um, a historian of early America. I got my PhD at the University of California, Davis. Uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful place. Um, as an undergrad, I actually was a um, political theory major. And when I decided to go back to grad school, I I, I didn't think that the, the, polit- the political theory was going to have the answers I wanted. And I really wanted to transition to To history, and so before I did that, I went and got a master's in history at um, at California State University, um, East Bay, and that's actually where I fell in love with early American history. So um, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, Saint Mary's College is a small uh, liberal arts school in the East Bay, kind of in the Oakland uh, on the Oakland Hills, Um, and so I've lived up in the Bay Area. I'm a native Californian. I I, uh, came to the Bay Area to do my undergrad at Cal. Uh, UC Berkeley and uh, stayed. I love it in the Bay Area. Um, And um, I have uh, two kids an actor daughter who lives in New York and a son who just graduated and is looking to actually get into politics. So um, that's kind of um, a little bit of my trajectory.
0: Well, that's wonderful, Monica. So, you know, there's so many ways that we could kind of dive into your book, uh, but maybe. As as a way to start, you explore the disciplinary records in these church books in early Puritan America. And and are looking at these these records of church discipline cases. Could you maybe just start by telling us a little bit about about your research methodology and and what it was that you were actually um drawing your study on?
1: Um yeah. No, I mean it's amazing these um church disciplinary records haven't really been explored. Uh, There was one historian in the 1950s, um, Neil Oberhoser, who sort of looked at them and just kind of chronicled them. Um, But there's never been sort of any sort of study, uh, especially a gendered analysis of it. Um, And I actually came across the idea of looking at these records. I knew I wanted to do something about gender um, and religion in early America. And I was really drawn to a couple of arguments. Um, uh, historian David Hall uh, writes uh, what he calls about the uh, daily lived religion. And I was really drawn to that, but wanted kind of to do a gender daily lived religion. I really felt like that, that there was something there that was unexplored. Um, And so my advisor um, at the time um, for my dissertation, um, uh, Alan Taylor, said, you know, often look in in the bibliography of one of your favorite books, because oftentimes they'll give you advice um, or they'll say, you know, someone should be looking at this. Right. And so um, uh, for me, uh, it was Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, who uh, I think that's why I fell in love with American history. Um, her first book, Good Wives, and then, of course, Midwife's Tale. And in the back of, um, the, her book, Good Wives, that came out in 1980, um, she wrote, um, in a little, a little note, uh, that, oh, someone really should look at these church, church records, church disciplinary records. That was it. One line in a bibliography. And, um, yeah. And I was really drawn to it because, they're just these little vignettes i mean one of the reasons i think that um that people haven't looked at it necessarily is because um you only you might have church records missing from one church for a while uh they're not always consistent sometimes it depended on uh who um the pastor was whether or not they actually recorded the confessions um, so there are all sorts of things that make them um somewhat difficult. But it also you still can see the patterns over time in them. Mm-hmm. But the beautiful thing, right, is if you're looking at um daily lived religion, daily lived experience, uh, there's nothing better than actually reading the voices of ordinary people, right? I mean, talk about something that is extraordinary. And so you ended up having these amazing vignettes um, and think about how vulnerable it is when somebody has to actually stand up and, and confess something they did wrong to their entire congregation. Mm. And there was so much theater and drama that, that was brought with it, but it was also a mechanism for storytelling. And I was really drawn to, to, to creating kind of narrative that could draw people in to help understand. And so, you know, as you know, as you know in the book, you know, each chapter starts with a, a, a vignette, a story, to kind of help. And then I try to, you know, take it apart and analyze it. Um, but they really are extraordinary. Um, they're extraordinary records. And so, um, you know, I spent a fair amount of time in um, New England, um, you know, archives um, and um, looking at these church records, and it's. It revealed so much and, of course, took me in ways, took me down lanes that I wasn't anticipating. And one of the early ones being is how gendered the language was in these confessions. Um, And then, of course, what um, unrolled from then is sort of the the gendered expectations um, Mm. that ministers and um, the congregation had in someone's confession. Um, and so it kind of unrolled from there because I really was very interested in um, kind of the radical potential of Protestantism, right, um, in terms mm-hmm. of gender. And we thought, you know, the Quakers did embrace uh, much more, much more um, radical gender ideas uh, and much more equality. Um, and I, I, I always saw that potential in Puritanism. And I was I've been like, why, why? Did Puritanism not adopt kind of more mm-hmm. gender equity? And so this kind of really uh, opened the door to really be able to explore that um, through these stories and being able to re- recognize the patterns that emerge um, in, you know, the kinds of things people are um, accused of. Obviously, in, in my book, you know, a lot ends up being, you know, fornicating and drinking, right? <laughs> um, uh, the two big gendered sins. Um, so. That's kind of how it all began, really, with a with an entry in a bibliography. So, you know, um, shout out to Laura Thatcher Ulrich, and um, hope you know it made me realize, oh, you know, how can I pay it forward and um, and uh, give uh, give readers an idea of things that are still unexplored.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so if anyone's listening right now and and is looking t- for a dissertation topic, uh, we can say take a look at some <laughs> bibliographies and see what the right, suggestions absolutely. are. Yeah, Monica, you use the word vignette and I think that is one of the things that makes your book so charming is all of these these little insights into lived experiences in a way that just they just pop right off the page. Your first chapter starts with this unforgettable image of of chickens and chamber pots in Dorchester. So maybe, could you tell us a little bit, uh, set the scene of how this starts to really tell us what's happening in the growing rift between clergy and laity among this first generation of Puritans that really sets up your your case study of of Puritans' evolving understandings of gender?
1: Um, yeah. Well, um, and that story of the, the, uh, the great hen squabble, as I call it, uh, and in the article that preceded the book, that was actually one of the titles of the article, uh, um, uh, Drunkards, Fornicators, and the Great Hen Squabble, um, uh, which they didn't call it a great hen squabble. That was all me, but um, I do like titles. Um, well, yeah, and I think that um, uh, that that story, the, the, the um, chamber pot story, uh, and honestly, when I would go to conferences, I actually, I would have a chamber pot, because why not, right? um just to just to just to show um i obviously you know that the 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 chamber plot story first of all is so easy for people to visualize right i mean you could just picture uh and and I also thought it was a way to show uh a reading audience to illustrate to a reading audience um the the lack of privacy that existed at this time that that it it isn't unexpected that chickens are going to wander into your house um that belong to your neighbor right um um but also it's such a great story because i think one of the anyone who writes about puritans one of the things that you always have to overcome um from um an audience is just this idea that the puritans were like um boring, you know, they didn't enjoy fun. They, you know, and this story just, you see these women catfighting, right? And I know that's actually a very gender, catfighting is a very gender term, um but you see them going at each other and bringing their servant and their daughter into it. And, but you you can see the neighborly buildup of the tension, right? That exists. So I really felt like this story um was a way for people to see, okay, these are real people. Um, This is not some caricature of, you know, um, from an Arthur Miller play or something that these are real people with real problems. But then of course, you get down to the, to the root of the issue of all the things that could have happened and you could have been sued for this or that with private property and the chickens is that came down to a woman lying. Um, And I thought, you know, that i mean first of all that completely resonates today which is which is really primary uh for me um but that you you start out with this story is that a woman's tongue like a woman telling a simple lie then escalates this and gets her censured right um and so i think that that, that opens it opens up the book in a way that enables the readers to immediately see oh the, the line, right. And, um, many more women get censured or disciplined for lying than men, because there's something, um, distrustful about women. Uh, and of course the, uh, you know, at the end of the book, the story of Anne Hibbins, you see what trouble a woman's tongue can get her in, you know, what women's speech, how dangerous it is. So that kind of sets up that narrative. And in, in a similar way, um, I think one of my favorite stories is the introduction where content Mason is running away um, w- with her lover. Right. Um, and, and then, but she comes back and kind of becomes a member of the community again and is redeemed. And, you know, her daughter, marries an upstanding um, minister and that sort of thing. So trying to just illustrate all the ways that so many things we struggle with or think about or worry about today, the very humanness of our condition was also true for these folks. Um, mm-hmm. Because I do, you know, my, you know, the reason I'm interested in early America is because I, I believe that for us to kind of dismantle and uproot some of our issues today, we have to understand. We have to historicize it and understand the roots and the beginnings of it, right? So, for me, um, history is storytelling from the past, but in order to impact today. Uh, and I think making the Puritans right. relatable, uh, through these vignettes, was was critical for me.
0: Yeah. So you you start to move. So from chapter one, you move in chapter two to start to analyze. There are different sins that are showing up in these church discipline cases between women and men. What does that tell us about the way that religion and, and Puritan piety was starting to be expressed in different ways between women and lay men and and ministers exist in this kind of third category between them?
1: Right. Right. Uh, Yeah, and that gets at sort of, you know, really exploring um, how Puritanism became gendered, because I I think there was an expectation, uh, certainly from the ministers, certainly, you know, um, coming to New England, that um, all as, you know, just, you know, for folks who who don't know, is that out of the Protestant Reformation and, and Puritans adopted this idea that all souls are equal. And it and it really kind of opened things up, um, and you see it you see it Quakers taking a much more radical approach uh, with a, a more gender equity because of that. So you have this idea in these covenants that that um, that every every um, church founded was that you had there were two parts of it. You had personal piety, right? You were supposed to do particular things um, to express your personal piety, but also you were there was this A sense of duty to the whole right that you were that Mm -hmm. and men and women were supposed to do both of those the ministers preached this idea of both aspects of the covenant be um be expressed by both people by both by both genders um but what we see in reality right is that um and and I argue that really lay men who because they they voted on church censures um and women didn't get to vote that lay men really undermined that expression um for for a variety of reasons which I'm sure we'll get into but that when you look at the vast majority of the sins you can you can um, uh, delineate them in between um, drinking and fornicating. Now, you would expect, if you were a statistician, that an equal number of men and women generally in the 17th century would have been charged for for illicit sex. Um, But men were very rarely charged. Um, Most of the time, if they uh, were censured for sex outside of marriage, it's because they came to confess with their wife that they had had sex before they got married. very rarely does a single man come on his own but constantly we see women having to come confess and it you'll get into this idea um around obviously right controlling women's bodies um policing women's bodies in ways that you don't police men um or the expectation of purity for women uh that didn't necessarily exist for men um and and I'll get into the language in a little bit, but with 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 drinking, um, you know, parents really didn't care if someone drank themselves uh, overdrank in in private, right? What they didn't care when they're doing their own home, and we have to realize during this time, beer was safer than water, right? So, you know, people were drinking beer all day long, right? So, um. But it's this public performance aspect of being drunk in public that became so identified with men. And it was easier for men to censor other men for drinking, which was already um, a, a perceived masculine sort of thing. Right. Women, might, women owned taverns, but women didn't necessarily go to taverns to drink. Right. Whereas that was a very male space. Um, and so policing men in that way became um, much easier. And But what's interesting is for men charged with a drunkenness, it was considered a dereliction of duty. Whereas women censured for um, having sex outside of marriage, it was considered an internal sin, a sin of piety. So you see this divide and we see it over and over again that even if men and women are charged with the same kind of sin, say lying is one that, you know, men and women could be charged with is that um, it was, it was considered um, a corruption of her nature or her soul that she sinned. Whereas for men, for men it was likely some external thing that rationalized their behavior. So you immediately get this divide in the way um Men and women are censured, in the types of um, censures they have, and the expectation around their the confession, sorry, their confession um, that uh, women have to examine their soul and men examine their behavior, and that just that divide became so apparent to me so early on, Um, and it gets to right sort of um, this idea of public performance and private right, which eventually becomes this public-private dichotomy, right, um, but very early on, that yeah. it was women's corrupt natures, but men, men, men's aberrant behavior, um, and we see that, so that chapter on dr- drinking and fornicating on gendered sin and discipline is a really good way of illustrating that to the reader, this real divide that um, men were not expect, laymen never expected other laymen to stand up in church and interrogate the natures of their souls, right? But women were expected to do that mm-hmm. in ways, uh, you know, you as you read some of these confessions, that were really um, self-critical and and demeaning, um, really interrogating their natures and talking about how corrupt they are, and and you know begging the congregation, you know, to forgive them and that they erred, whereas men speak in a much less um uh, uh uh what I'm trying to think of the right word for it. <laughs> you would think I would know. But men speak in in a much more like legalese kind of way about their about their sin as opposed to women. Women were expected um to um, to be a really self critical and self reflective. Whereas men it's like what what did they do wrong in their, to their community? So for all of these men, of course, there's a great, I mean, I love the, the story of um, Consider Atherton, right, uh, who, um, that leads chapter two, right, who ends up drunk in a ditch, right? And somebody comes along and finds him because he's passed out. And he came from this prominent family. And over and over again, he had these episodes of public drunkenness. I mean, if anyone probably had some, you know, nat- internal nature problems, it was consider. Um, but instead of really interrogating the state of his soul, it was like, how did he let his community down by getting drunk? Right? How did he fail in his duty to his community? Um, whereas, uh, and yes, yeah, as opposed to as opposed to women and fornicating. So, I thought that was a great. Gender divide to really get at the heart of what I see as important differences that 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 develop um, in the first three generations.
0: Yeah, that's right. And so while you have these little vignettes, you really close with these two larger case studies as this emergence of of masculinity and femininity become more and more entrenched in this in this culture, the first case study is, is John Underhill. So who, who is John Underhill and what does his story tell us about this emerging lay Puritan male masculinity?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, Oh my goodness. He is such a character. Uh, and probably one of the Puritans uh, one of the people i my book that people might've heard of the most. Um, so captain John Underhill was uh, at the time an acclaimed war hero, um for massacring the Pequot Indians. So, uh it really we now talk about it as a genocide, um but he he really became famous for that. Um and you know, um when I first outlined this book, I didn't have these two final chapters in it. Mm-hmm. Um but what I realized is um how can I you know, take a case study of a person, you know, rather than a town, because I look at these towns, take a case study of a person to really dig deep and illuminate kind of the tensions. And John Underhill became such the perfect um, uh, man to do this with. And it really opened up, you know, um, in terms of looking at, you know, gender studies, studies in masculinity in early America are really just emerging, some really. Some scholars doing some really great work now um, and um, it has really opened up this door to me of looking at uh, masculinity in different in different contexts in early America. Um, but, but what we have here for John Underhill, he was trained to be a warrior right And so um, what I argue is that he represents this sort of hyper masculinity. And, and we understand that. We talk about hypermasculinity today all the time, right, in terms of um, uh, some, you know, gendered uh, issues of today. Um, but, you know, this idea of the, um, the soldier, right, with the, supposed to be the super hyper-masculine um, hero, right, aggressive. And we see hyper-masculinity celebrated in certain contexts in the way we talk about conquerors. Right when we talk, the language we use about conquering the new, so, so-called new world, you know, is this very masculine language that is um, not only rooted in um, violence but sexual prowess and sexual conquest. And John Underhill has all of that. He was, you know, trained as a military. Uh, he was trained in a military academy. Uh, he was successful. Um, against the Pequots Rose as his captain, also a, a womanizer, right. So he had this whole package as a hyper Um And in many contexts in you know he would have you know been awarded a lot of money and become a leader in his community. And I think that that's what he expected. John Underhill expected after, um, after what he did uh, with the war that he would become this hero and this leader in Boston. Um, but what was happening is puritans um especially ministers uh, prescribed a more tempered kind of masculinity right and there's lots of ways when you really look at Puritans and plenty of amazing historians that um i I have um uh learned from and grown from and used in my book talk about Puritanism being a feminized religion right, and we get at this whole idea of. Of, of piety and introspection, and the ministers use a lot of feminized language to talk about religion. So here you have this hyper-masculinity that celebrated war hero, yet now you have this religion that's calling for a more tempered, uh, humble, feminine masculinity, <laughs> feminized masculinity. And that comes into conflict. Yeah. I mean, that really is the heart of this. And that's been super interesting for me because I, I had not explored masculinity as much earlier in, in my um, grad work. Um, but really, that is, the, um, that is the crux of it, is that laymen were in the middle of this. They couldn't accept the sort of feminized spirituality that ministers wanted. But you couldn't build a church in society with the hyper masculinity that that John Underhill had. And so you I, I call it the middle ground of masculinity, um, and that's from an early you know that's taking a concept by another historian about the middle ground in early America, but I call this the middle ground of masculinity, and that's what laymen were trying to do. So the story of John Underhill, he gets um basically he's excommunicated from the church um for having an affair and uh honestly like he is so i mean he would be you would i'm try, i was trying to i'm trying, were you trying to think of what's a contemporary figure because he he was so arrogant he had such hubris he had such a sense of power and privilege right like as being the white hero yeah. he had, he had he had had an affair with a ton of women like he was the guy's guy right like there's no other way to talk about it so he gets excommunicated for having an affair and basically, his confession was, uh, yeah, I you know I tried to stay away from her, but she couldn't, she you know no one can you know not succumb to me because I'm just so hot, and that was his apology to this, this woman's husband, right? So um, he has such hubris that uh, he doesn't, he's not able to um, to understand the nuances of of the expectations around gender. So he loses, I mean, he gets excommunicated. He loses everything. He goes off and um, he, you know, goes to Dover where they actually, because he's a war hero, they make him a governor and tell everybody in Massachusetts rights or in Boston rights and says, do you know, this guy's excommunicated. So he loses everything again. So he finally then comes back to Boston. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you, he tried another time, bad confession, um, because they, they really wanted it to be sincere right? And he couldn't quite get that sincerity, right? Um, Because fundamentally, he doesn't think he ever really did anything wrong. So he's just trying to check a box. So then this is the only case I found of a man really trying to perform confession with a feminized demeanor. So he comes in, um, clothes were really important to him. And so he usually was very well-dressed. I mean, if you look back at his lineage, you know, there's a whole Underhill Society. If you look back at his lineage, his grandfather was the keeper of the wardrobe, right? So, um, and it was a marker of identity, as we know. So he, so instead, he comes into church wearing, you know, a, a, just a, a worn hat, and he, he looks a wreck, and he looks just beaten up and demoralized and kind of... I think they call it They said pathetic, that he looked pathetic and he gave this crying sort of confession, um, but it worked. He, you know, he was relieved of his excommunication. He never got his status back in New England at all. Um, but I think that there's a, a few stories of men in these records where, you know, they just end up leaving because they can't temper their masculinity. <laughs> Um, whether they're womanizers or war heroes. And so I really thought that John Underhill was such a great representative of these competing masculinities. And I don't think that we talk about that enough and how problematic it is when you don't fit and you can't.
0: Yeah, you talk about these competing masculinities, which really expose this growing rift between laymen and and the clergy in particular then the next episode starts to again show that this this rift between the the laymen who are deciding these church discipline cases and the ministers have who have their own version of ethics and and norms plays out in a marked way in the trial of of Ann Hibbins so to so tell us a little bit about who this person is and how this um, this starts to wrap up your uh, your case study in Puritan gendered piety.
1: Yeah, um, the story of Anne Hibbins is just amazing, and it is, it's also one of those why don't people know her story more? I really I wanted to just put a huge spotlight on her because I think it's so remarkable what happened to her and. I think it's I also find like so many women could relate today to the sexism and the misogyny, right? So, um and it's also an interesting story because um she came from a wealthy she was a wealthy she was a wealthy woman. I mean, her and her husband had good standing in the community. Um and so she, her story really, I mean, she had she had contractors come in and she didn't like their work. And um at the end of the day, she was hung as a witch. And it's what the story of how all of this unravels is so compelling and such a, a a great case study of um what happens in a society where women, you know, can't claim power, right? So she ends up getting censured and 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 she's she's angry because why am I being called out? He didn't do work. She got censured for undermining a man's business um, uh, uh, reputation, so that's why she got censured um because she was defaming this contractor who did a poor job. And it seems to me that uh, her and her husband have a really good relationship where he let her like have control over this. Right. So this was not something where he thought his wife was going out of the boundaries of their marriage and behaving in a way that wasn't acceptable. Um, So it seems like they had this kind of relationship that um, that gave her sort of the um, autonomy to take care of this household matter. Um, so the um, the men and the laymen in the congregation voting on this, you know, basically send her away and say, "You better come back and do a better job." And she was trying to figure out what they really wanted. So at one point she asked, "Can I do a written confession?" Because you know that way, and they're like, "No, you need to you need to speak to us, and you need to confess in front of us." And then it was basically one of those back and forth, like, you need to, you need to apologize while I'm trying to talk. They kept shutting her up and interrupting her. They wouldn't let her speak. And she actually called them out on it. Like, you you are asking me to explain myself. I'm trying to explain myself. Yet you shut me up every time. Um, Because they only wanted her to say what they wanted her to say. They didn't really want to hear her side of anything. And, uh, you know, at one point her husband tries to intervene, um, in a way of like, Hey, let me, let me try to explain what she really, what she really means here. Like, you know, trying to, to smooth things over. Um, and then, um, you know, she gets, um, excommunicated. Nothing much really happens until her husband dies years later when her husband died That they never really forgot that she was just this uppity woman who didn't know her place, and she had offended so many men in the community that she was charged with witchcraft. And I don't know if you've ever read this. Carol Carlson has this great, great book um, um, that really explains sort of uh, the issue around you know women and witchcraft and widowed women with no inheriting sons and that they had this level of power. So oftentimes it, it wasn't that outlier poor woman, you know, on the edge of town that was accused of witchcraft, right? It was like women who had potential power that was seen as a threat. So here is, so Anne Heaven spent her adult life being ridiculed by the community, um, you know, uh, excommunicated outcast for her outspokenness and her um, um, her unwillingness to submit and she's walking by a group of, of people, and she said, "I know you're talking about me." And they said, "The only way you would know we're talking about you is if you were a witch." And not that, of course, they're talking about her. They spent the last, you know, decade talking about her, right? Um, for that, she was actually hung as a witch, um, but it's something they had wanted to do from the time that she would not submit and without the protection of her husband, um, she was accused of witchcraft. It is a remarkable story because she was, you know, um, a strong member of the community um, and she really just withstood her ground and it cost her.
0: Yeah. You, you include this uh, afterward. I think it was from, was it from the minister, John Norton, who was, reported to have been at a at a dinner party commenting on this. They, even though the, the magistrates and the ministers tried to intervene in this case, they just couldn't kind of, you know, calm the mob. But I think it was uh, that he, what was his comment that that she was hung as a witch for being cleverer than other people or something like that. Right. It was just this
1: yeah. tragic. Isn't that, yeah. Isn't that a great quote? I couldn't, have, <laughs> yeah. I could you know, it's a kind of a quote you find it and you're like, you just wrapped up my whole story for me, right? Um, what I think is interesting, because of course she went, her her original riff was with a contractor. And so there's an, there's an interesting class element here, which you don't necessarily mm-hmm. find in a lot of the confessions. But she she did have um, some of the wealthier men in the community that tried to, to save her and thought that this right. was unacceptable. Um, but a lot of the laymen who had all sorts of resentments also resented her going after this, you know, contractor, um, and 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 that played a role in it because, because because I do think some of the people who tried to defend her, the men who tried to defend her, um, were wealthier of her class and had been friends with her, um, but but their status was not enough um, to hmm. make a difference um, in that wow.
0: trial. Talk about a populist backlash exactly yeah so what you you touched on this at the beginning of the story with ann heavens that she was had this remarkable amount of autonomy and in the the first generations of puritans the the kind of very distinct gendered roles don't seem to be so much at play but this is something that you're just noticing is emerging over the three generations so so just kind of wrapping all of this up, what, what is, so we see that there's this trajectory happening that's gender roles are being constructed in these three subsequent generations of Puritans. Is is that is that an accurate summary of what you're, the story that you're seeing playing out here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there are some other really great historians that I cite in my book that talk about sort of um, the the fluidity of gender in the early 17th century. And certainly Laura Thatcher Ulrich was one of the first with um, her book on Good Wife. But that again, right. In order to um, create community, build community, when they, when they migrated here, you needed roles. You know, women needed to have larger roles in order to help, build the community and sustain the family and grow. Right. And Laura Thatcher Ulrich actually wrote this uh, about this idea um, that women actually were deputy husbands that, you know, they could sign contracts on behalf of their husbands um, that they had a lot of um, kind of autonomy that way and power that way out of necessity. Right. Um, But also too, is that we see with the, 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 church being the center of public life and women having a sense of at least, you know, um, um, identity and informal power in those spaces that as long as the church was the the public place, you know, women were elevated in some degrees um, because of their church status. Um, And so, you know, uh, gender historians have looked at different moments in time where we begin to see sort of this dichotomy or the, the separate spheres ideology, as it's called, that, um, you know, we thought really happened in the 19th century with industrialization that men entered the public world and women were relegated to the private world, right? But what we really see is this, this, the, the, the steps leading to that. I, then that, that's a huge point in my book. The construction of modern gender ideologies really did start then, where you begin to see men being focused on for their public roles, right, their duty, their Puritan duty, where women were really meant to be more internal. And then, of course, after 1692, when the church didn't have public power anymore, um, and women were relegated to the private sphere of the church, right, and men um, to the big public sphere, right, and that's when you really begin to see um, church membership become much more female-only, because men could express their public duty and their religiosity through those public roles. And so, and that's where, yeah. so we begin. So one of the arguments of my book is that this shift actually starts earlier than we thought um, in a place we weren't really looking um, and I, in, the, in the church itself.
0: Well, it's a fascinating story that you tell, and I'm sure that anyone listening uh, has already well aware that there's plenty of colorful stories <laughs> ready to be enjoyed uh, throughout the book. So, M- Monica, you've been you've been incredibly kind in coming to talk with us about your book. I'm curious, before we go, what are you working on at the moment? What can we be looking forward to from you?
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I actually um, through this work, I am I'm continuing to really look at. The expressions of masculinity and the impact that had on puritanism and public space and, 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 in, early, in early New England. And so I'm, uh, Robert Keene is another merchant. He actually is one who recorded a lot of what we have about Anne Hibbins because he wrote, he wrote it down in his, um, in his journal. Um, and he was censured basically for price gouging essentially. Um, and so kind of, um, uh, uh, working with a colleague to really kind of interrogate that and use that as a lens to kind of dig deeper into contested masculinity in early America um, is something that, I'm, that I'm, um, I'm starting, you know, early on, as you know, it's the early, uh, you know, pre, um, pre-chapter outline phases of, of what that might look like.
0: Wonderful. Well, I'm so excited to follow that project and I can't wait to read it once it's ready to come out. Well, this has been a delight. We've been talking with Monica D. Fitzgerald about her book, Puritans Behaving Badly, Gender Punishment and Religion in Early America, available now from Cambridge University Press. Monica, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you. It was a joy to talk with you. I so appreciate it.
0: And thanks for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this podcast, I invite you to like and rate, subscribe, do all of those normal podcasty things. But the most important thing is if there's anyone that you can think of who would find this episode interesting, send it along to them, spread the word about what we're trying to do here at the New Books Network. That's it for now. I hope you have a great day.